Thank you very much all for coming along today. Um, it's a great turnout. I'm very impressed. And all of you are related to me, so that's, um, that's, a, that's a big one. So yes, I'm here mostly to talk about, um, about ocean. So it is um, designed to be a reflection on uh, New Zealand's relationship with the sea over time through its history, right from the very first human inhabitants of these islands right through uh, the 19th century um, into the 20th and now into the 21st. Um, so New Zealand is by its very nature a maritime country. We are a selection of very small islands in the middle of a vast ocean um, with around 18,000 kilometres of coastline. It's the last major inhabited, uh, last major landmass in the world to be inhabited um, by people. And so we are everything about, I think everything about our culture is, is steeped in the sea. It's interesting how now today many of us um, in a way turn our backs on the sea. It's no longer the lifeblood that it used to be, but it's certainly been critical in New Zealand's development and history throughout its, throughout its history. The book came into being because um, uh, of, out of my interest in the sea and, and my interest in history, um, but also because of the, the, the growing interest which is being seen in the, in the wider community in our maritime heritage and as we're seeing with the, uh, with the Tuia 250 um, encounters, uh, commemorations this year about that relationship about who came here by sea, um, both the Polynesians but then also the later the European explorers, how they met, how those encounters um, have affected our lives and so I think it's a really great time. The other thing we're seeing an interest in the rise in, in, uh, in things maritime and I think this will start, probably start to kick off I would say next summer and further on is, of course, up in Auckland we're about to have the America's Cup again, which um, I gave a talk in Auckland the other day when I was saying that, um, you know, the song goes, we built the city on rock and roll. I very much feel Auckland is a city that's built on the America's Cup. It's not the city that I was brought up in. It's changed so much um, because of the America's Cup and I'm really excited to see that coming back here again. And, uh, and the book does talk about our heritage in the America's Cup and how that's, how that's affected us as well. So the book is a combination of, um, of historical stories, so uh, it's arranged in ten topics from, right, from, um, from Māori and their, uh, their relationship with the sea, their arrival here, um, through the first uh, European explorers, immigrants, the industries that sprung up, the way the sea was used for transport, um, our relationship with it from an environmental point of view, uh, recreation, defence. Um, so lots of different aspects of it illustrated by historical stories. The other thing the book has, which makes it, um, I think, adds another dimension to it, is it has each chapter has a, a contemporary interview with someone whose life has been uh, affected by or entwined with the sea. So whether they're people who, um, I spoke to a guy who I met up in Auckland who was a, uh, a lighthouse repairer for the Ministry of Works in the 1970s and 80s. Um, I talked to Sir Russell Coates, so I'll mention him a little bit later on. Um, I talked to um, a man called David Horry who's been um, reconstructing Abel Tasman's voyages. So people whose lives are connected with these historical stories as well, so it has that, that contemporary aspect as well. As I mentioned, um, I think images play a really big role in the book. I've tried to use lots and lots of images tried to use them large. I think uh, I know myself I get a lot of inspiration and interest out of, of looking at, um, at beautiful images and, and, and trying to unpick the stories behind them and we'll talk a little bit about one of the pictures in the book later on which, which tells quite a different story. So I think one of the things the book shows is that the change in our relationship with the sea over time from something that was absolutely critical and life-giving into something in the later chapters where it becomes a site of recreation. And when we start, we stop viewing it as um, a resource to be exploited and start appreciating it for its intrinsic value. Um, I've started off with this image of Wellington, um, which is one of the images in the book. Um, obviously, as an Aucklander, I come from a, a maritime city, one which is a very important port and harbour, and, and Wellington has that role as well. Um, 
long been settled by Māori, it appears, in, in the legends of Kupe coming down this, the east coast chasing uh, a giant octopus. He rested here um, in uh, Te Whanganui Atara before crossing across to the Marlborough Sounds and chasing it through there and finally, uh, finally killing it over there. Um, and then also it's, uh, it was then populated by Māori, um, uh, different groups of Māori over time, very much seen as a tactical location by Te Rapraha, um, and then later um, by Te Atiawa and the Taranaki tribes. Um, interestingly, in this year of, of commemorating Cook's first visit, Cook didn't, uh, didn't come here. He, uh, obviously, even though out here is Cook Strait, he didn't call it that either. Um, he just drew a little bit of a wiggly line there. He had an idea there might have been a harbour in there, but he didn't actually visit the harbour. Uh, I've included here a picture of the Spanish helmet, um, which, is in the, which is in Te Papa now, um, which may be a red herring, but maybe an interesting story. This helmet was found in Wellington Harbour. Um, and was in the Dominion collections um, from about the 1900s, but it dates from the 1500s. And so whether or not this was something that um, an immigrant brought out here and biffed over the side um, by accident, or whether it was uh, whether New Zealand was in fact visited by the Spanish and it was left here uh, long ago, no one knows. The things we do know is that from the 1820s, um, uh, immigrants started to come here. The New Zealand Company had its first um, voyage here and investigation here in the 1920s. The whalers and traders moved in and then those first New Zealand Company ships actually arrived here shortly before the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi in 1840. The settlement became established and it became the capital in 1850. 1865, sorry. Um, and became a, an important hub for transportation. And, and so again, like Auckland, a lot of uh, the life in the city was based around the sea. Uh, people, goods, trading, Māori and Pākehā together, tied together by the sea. Uh, it's also been a site of immigration throughout its history uh, moving forward. Um, one of the other stories in the book is uh, I, I came down to Wellington this time last year and had a delightful afternoon with a woman called Christina Kolodinska Downa. Um, who was a, uh, a Polish child refugee who came out here with her mother um, with the Polish refugees after the Second World War about her memories of, of coming here by ship um, and what Wellington looked like at that time. So I want to talk about three stories that are specific to the Wellington region that are in the book and then have a look at some other images um, and some other interesting stories just to give you a bit of an insight about, uh, about what's, what's in the book. So um, you can probably read the writing there. This was the, the first lighthouse um, at Pencaro, and it is literally, as you see, a house with a light in it. Um, nothing like the structure we see now. Um, I was flying down this morning and, and, and uh, had a really great aerial view of just how rugged and rough the coastline is here, down around here. We sort of flew in around the past the curve around um, the bottom of the wire wrapper and then over all these rocks. And, then, you know, the, it was a really... Um, as I said, it's a long shore, it's rocky, it's tidal. We have a prevailing southwesterly, so the west coast is basically a continual lee shore. Um, the first people that came here, it's uh, well, it's actually it's a miracle that many of the people, that many of the explorers actually made it back in one piece. Um, but it's a very dangerous coast. And so as soon as the first people, uh, first Europeans started to settle here, um, they were agitating for lighthouses. People in Wellington were wanting one from very early on. Um, this year with a dangerous harbour entrance and obviously the... Um, the weather here, um, which I won't go into in detail. Um, and so agitation began quite early on. Um, Edward Jerningham Wakefield um, was writing to the uh, to the paper quite early on, saying that uh, about his adventures and how he thought that the harbour would be improved by having a lighthouse. He'd been blocked from getting into the harbour during the day by a northwesterly gale, and so they'd anchored um, in the lee of one of the cliffs, and then a southerly gale came in and they got blown halfway to Hawke's Bay. And so he said it would be much more helpful if there'd been a light so he could actually get in and, and be safe. 
Unfortunately, there was a lot of bureaucratic wrangling, and it wasn't until 1859 that the, uh, that the actual lighthouse opened. Um, it's cast iron. It was designed and prefabricated in Scotland and shipped out here um, and put up on the cliffs at Pencarrow. Unfortunately, the position of it soon became a problem um, because a lot of the time it was hidden by cloud, fog, driving rain. Uh, it's too high up above the ground to actually be much above the sea level to be much use. And so um, first they added a fog signal which would go off so that these people had a sound signal to know roughly where it was. And then they built a second light uh, at the base of the cliffs, which you can, which you can see there. That's a nice, uh, nice Wellington day there. Um, the interesting, the other interesting part of the story is one of the things I've tried to do with the book is include the stories of, of people, the people that were involved, and um, as those of us who studied history in a traditional way know that there are lots of stories about men, so I've tried to include lots of stories about women wherever I can. Um, the first keeper of the Pencaro light was, was George Bennett, who came out uh, to Wellington on the Cuba, and he arrived slightly before Treaty of Waitangi. Um, he had a wife named Mary Jane Hebden, um, who became Bennett. Um, so he was appointed the first lighthouse keeper in that... Uh, in that lighthouse we talked about before. Um, and they lived there with their four children. Uh, he described, he wrote many letters complaining about this and described the house as being neither wind nor waterproof, which I think would be quite an unfortunate situation to be in up on those cliffs there. Um, he drowned in 1855 and, uh, and Mary Jane took over from him, so she became New Zealand's first and only female lighthouse keeper. She ran the permanent light uh, until 1865 and one of her sons actually ran it later in the 1880s, so it became, became part of the family. There's a couple of other images here um, showing, you can see the old light there on top of the cliff, this beautiful image of the, uh, the Union Steamship Company steamer SS Wellington coming into the harbour around 1870. And the book talks about um, the history of the Union Steamship Company, which was known as the Southern Octopus um, because of its reach and, uh, and influence um, in all the sea routes of this part of the country. Um, Another couple of ones here. Now, there's a beautiful Wellington day, isn't it? That's the, uh, on the right there is the TSS Awatea, which was one of the big glamour ships of the Union line. And on the left is the Inter-Island Ferry uh, Māori docked at Queen's Wharf in, in the 1920s. I think it's also an example where we see here of how tied to the sea people's lives were then, all our, all our freight, all our domestic movements. Um, obviously, the railways were open from the early 1900s, but um, roads remained bad and intermittent, so much freight was still being moved at, this, at these times. And of course that iconic um, trip between the two islands, which I'll come back to uh, with another Wellington story shortly. Now this is the picture I was talking about, which is probably my favourite image in the book, which you might think is a bit odd because it's blurry and it's unclear what's going on. But what I love about it is that we're so used to seeing um, our ancestors or um, New Zealanders of the Victorian and Edwardian times, very posed. They're almost like propaganda images in a way. They're showing you something that they want to be seen. Um, these, the pictures are usually carefully um, chosen and the things that people are holding. This, this is a very, very rare example of an action shot um, taken during the Great Strike of late 1913 of, uh, of what was known as the, the Battle of Featherston Street. Um, which was a, this culmination of a series of, of riots and, and outbreaks of civil unrest. It's the closest that New Zealand has, has, is considered to be the closest New Zealand has come to being in a state of civil war. Uh, there were riots in the streets. Um, the streets were full of mounted police. This image shows, um, you can just see in the distance there, um, there's a, a phalanx of horses riding down the street, and these are the specials coming to, uh, to attack the strike breakers. It's very unusual for someone to have had the presence of mind to take this picture when he's about to be run down um, by people on horses with batons. 
Um, so the strike centred around, uh, it involved several unions, but didn't involve the watersiders. At that time, as I said, that because the uh, the ocean was such a critical pathway, the watersiders were a really critical part of that, of keeping that moving. And so in some ways they were the, the other lifeblood of the economy as well as farming, moving goods around both um, domestically and internationally. But water siding work was very um, was hard work. These guys are, are lumping coal, um, unreliable. Um, it's no continuity of work. People would turn up at four o'clock in the morning and queue up to see if they'd be signed on for the day. Um, so it was a very unstable in, environment um, for those workers. New Zealand had been in the late 1890s and early 1900s. New Zealand was being promoted around the world as this kind of socialist utopia where uh, there, were, there was no class system, and the Liberal government had introduced all these social reforms, um, including the Industrial Conciliation and Arbitration Act of 1894, which um, which had settled down industrial relations and um, had actually made it illegal to strike. But by by the early 1910s, the cracks were starting to show big rise in class consciousness that um, we began to realise that while we had tried to transport um, the British system here, that, that the, the stratification was still occurring, even though we like to think of it as being a, um, a country of equality. And so people, the, the working people were beginning to realise that they were a class of their own. They were being radicalised by movements overseas. Um, and so there was starting to be a lot more unrest, um, and these people began to realise that, um, that there was a divide between them, the rich and the poor. On the other side of the equation was a, um, a government that was very um, sympathetic to capital um, and, and run largely by farmers. And so um, these two forces were in play when, when the waters decided, decided to, to go against the law and, and strike in, in late 1913. Um, so they were locked out and their places on the walls were taken by scabs. Um, or, so they were, um, Basically, the wharves continued to operate while these people continued to, while the border sides continued to protest. Uh, Massey, the um, the prime minister, brought in these um, these both mounted specials who were um, often farmers or people from the country who wanted to keep the wharves moving, um, and armed them not only with batons but also in some cases with guns, um, and also foot specials who were um, sometimes university students or other um, middle class uh, men who uh, felt they should do their bit to keep the um, keep the country moving. And so ensued this period of, of unrest where, where where things were trying to go on as usual, but, but the city was being taken over by um, by huge um, numbers of mounted police. Um, as a, I'm also a novelist, and so the idea of this kind of, this kind of image fascinates me, the idea of living in a city um, sort of under lockdown where there are, there are mounted police patrolling the streets, there's a sense of, of riots breaking out at any time. You know, we think of, the, as I said, the Victorians and the Edwardians as being very controlled and everything being very nice, um, but in actual fact there was this, this huge unrest going on. It must have been very, um, very weird and an unsettling time. The, uh, all the specials were camped up in Buckle Street, up where the, um, where the police station is, and the, and the contemporary accounts describe the, the streets at night ringing to the sound of hoofbeats as these people were, were patrolling. So um, things came to a head. Uh, I'll go back to this one. Um, on the 5th of November, there was a shipment of racehorses that were to be moved from Wellington to go down to the New Zealand Cup in Christchurch. And so they, um, the racehorses were escorted by a massive band of, of these mounted uh, special constables and uh, there's lots of stone throwing and then this huge riot, this running riot broke out um, all along the waterfront um, which I think must be one of the most dramatic but probably um, probably one of the most forgotten uh, aspects of, New of contemporary New Zealand history or 20th, 20th century New Zealand history. Um, and it was fascinating, I was just coming along this way uh, in the taxi from the airport and looking at that road and looking at the buildings that are still there, the building that's got the um, 
the, the Wellington Museum in it and I went past the post office square that was a big centre of, of foment um, and just thinking about these times in history um, and trying to bring those stories to life. Unfortunately by, um, by the middle of November the strike had failed, the economic pressure on the strikers um, became too great um, but things had definitely changed and the other thing that interests me about this time is, is looking at all these, the pictures of all these men and, and thinking that um, they'd gone through this experience, but then um, this world was then um, essentially lost and swept away the following year when the First World War broke out. And, um, and life would never be the same for any of these people, many of whom would have gone to war um, and, and things changed again. So interesting to see this as a, a snapshot in time. Um, so these images will be familiar to, um, to Wellingtonians and the story will be familiar to Wellingtonians. Um, the images of the Inter-Islander are, are integral to, um, to the memories of, of most New Zealanders over a certain age. Um, I know nowadays we can fly here and there and um, it's perhaps not as critical as it was. One of the, uh, as part of the research for the book last year, I came down, I, I made the trip from, from Picnoa to Wellington on the Inter-Islander just to, to relive that. My memories of it as a child were that it was an incredibly stressful thing to do, that you drove down from Auckland and then you had to drive your car onto the ferry and, um, and tie it down and get on the ferry. And both my mother and my sister are prone to seasickness, so there's always a lot of drama around that. So I was actually pleased to find it. it was actually, it's actually a really pleasant thing to do and I really enjoyed it. Um, but I did, I did get a good day, which, which helped. The other memory I have from childhood is that there was always uncertainty if we were driving to Christchurch to see my grandparents as to whether or not the ferry would even be running because they had a tendency of uh, going on strike at Christmas time. Um, and so I remember that was always a, a scene of tension. So the, um, obviously what I'm going to talk about now is the, is the wahini, and um, I was thinking about that again when I flew in today over the harbour. Um, it's slightly before my time, slightly before I was born, but it is... It is recent enough to make me pause and, and consider that, um, and I thought this a few, quite a few times while writing the book, that in actual fact we are living through history all the time and the things that are happening to us now will become history. Um, and so I tell some stories in the book that are more contemporary, um, a couple of stories from the 80s. I talk about the bombing of the Rainbow Warrior. As I said, I mentioned the, um, the America's Cup, our first, um, our first crack at the America's Cup around that same time. Because the things that we are facing now, um, the issues like climate change and the potential extinction of Maori dolphins and there are things happening now that will become history in the future and I'm really, um, partly makes me feel old to realise that I remember or half remember things that, um, that are now history but it also makes me realise that we are living through it all the time. And you know we like to think that, um, that something like the Wahine sinking couldn't happen again um, but one of the things about it was that um, it was part of a, it was victim to a a, a tropical cyclone, and obviously we're seeing more and more of those now. Um, I mean, at the time it was quite an unusual thing to happen that um, that it would have come so far down in that early in the season, but um, we all know from living through last summer um, that uh, that they can be incredibly destructive and, um, and, and wide-ranging. Obviously we have better weather forecasting now, but the idea that combination, people talk about that, you know, the movie and the book, The Perfect Storm, the combination of, of weather and things going wrong, um, we are very much at the mercy of the sea. Um, I think the Wahine story is also a kind of a loss of innocence for New Zealand, um, that so many people should have died so close to shore um, while we were living in modern times. Um, it's also well photographed and um, it was uh, during the television age, so people, people saw it, people saw the images of this thing happening. So um, I think it was a very shocking event in New Zealand history. Um, the Wahine was a reasonably new ship, she was only two years old. Um, she was designed to withstand rough conditions, she had modern equipment, she had radar. Um, and so the fact that then this, this ship did sink and these people died is, is quite shocking. Um, the, um, 
So um, the other thing that, that I think was, was shocking to a lot of people in the story I try and tell in the book is that um, it seemed to happen in slow motion. So um, a combination of winds and tides, so the, the, um, the wahine arrived in the harbour at the time when this tropical low was intensifying, um, broached, hit the reef, lost power. Um, as I said, sort of one thing after another, sort of a cascade of events. Um, and, and, and for a while, she sat there on the reef like that and wasn't sinking. And so there was actually um, about five hours before the order was given to evacuate. Um, while, and there the are a lot of quite poignant images that I've seen when I was researching of, of the people just sitting there waiting in their life jackets, just sitting upstairs waiting, um, believing all the time that they would simply be able to get to shore, um, which of course, as we now know, didn't happen. Um, and uh, things obviously went dramatically downhill. The boat um, continued to list further, got more into the reef, and the, and the evacuation was quite chaotic. And again, we think that this couldn't happen today, but um, you know, just because we live in a technologically advanced time and we think we know better doesn't mean that um, there's not the potential for for a for an evacuation like this going wrong again. Um, I wasn't heartened, I have to say, by the briefing at the beginning about the earthquakes. I sincerely hope that this is not going to happen. Um, and so uh, the, the people who got off initially and made it to the sea side of the harbour were largely okay, um, but unfortunately the majority, because of the, um, the changing winds and tides, were swept onto the rocks on the other side of the harbour, which was very hard to access, very rugged, and, um, and many people who actually made it that far in a lifeboat um, then died um, trying to get ashore on the far side. And so 53 people died um, in total, 51 on the day, one a couple of weeks later, and then the last person considered to be the last victim of the Wahine sinking, not until 1990. The other thing that interests me is that this picture here is just taken the day after. So it just goes to show that it just, it was this weather event, it came, it went, and there it was lying there that close to shore. Um, and it stated that the other thing I find quite disturbing, um, and I found this, I was thinking this when I came in on the Inter-Islander last year, is that it then stayed there for, for nearly five years, being cut up for scrap. They considered um, refloating it and, and salvaging it, but they decided not to. And so every person that went in and out on the Inter-Islander for five years had to go past it, which I think must have been quite, uh, quite traumatic. I want to share a section of, of some other images from the book and, and talk a little bit about um, the stories behind them as well. Um, I love this image. This is another example of um, uh, Victorian, the beautiful Victorian posing here. Um, this is a group of 19th century natural historians, scientists, and seekers after information, as I've described them. Um, well, among these is, is uh, James Hector, so he's second from the right, um, who was an amazing character um, who uh, had a huge influence on, um, on setting up a number of institutions. Um, in this country, he's the first director of the Colonial Museum, which went on to become the Dominion Museum, and to Papa. Um, he was involved in setting up what became the New Zealand Institute. Um, but he was among this, um, this breed of people in the, 19, in the 18, um, 70s and 80s who were, who were starting to classify and, um, and get to, really get to grips with New Zealand's natural world. Unfortunately, the way they often did that was by shooting things, um, taking them apart and stuffing them. But in this case, um, and I think in this case, this whale had actually been shot in order to get the uh, to get the skeleton, but he did also go around and uh, and visit strandings, and he'd um, he'd go off and see if he could obtain bones um, to try and uh, to get to the bottom of things. And so he's obviously he eventually his name was eventually given to Hector's dolphin. Um, when he described it, it was it was plentiful um, around the coast, and now of course we know it's one of the most endangered dolphin species in the world. The uh, the other guy in this in, of interest in this picture is. Uh, is Walter Mantell, who was another early uh, naturalist and politician. He sent a lot of material back to the British Museum, uh, to Richard Owen, um, to get word out about the amazing flora and fauna here. 
including large numbers of moa bones. So, um, so that was something else that was going on at that time, that idea that, that the natural world could be, and including the natural world of the sea, could be classified and could be known. This is, this is where it starts from. Um, because I'm a yachts person, um, I really wanted to include um, uh, a yacht here. This yacht, is, and I, this one's in the book, and I wanted to show it here because this is Iorangi, which was the, um, the Logan boat that was built for Alexander Turnbull. Um, he of, of the library, so there was an interesting article about Alexander Turnbull's um, somewhat interesting life in the Listener recently. Um, but he was a, a wealthy merchant and collector um, of, of items, especially books, and he had this beautiful yacht built. The, um, the Logan brothers um, were, were one of a number of boat builders up in Auckland who were utilising the, the beautiful kauri that was being taken from the forest to the north and turning it into these beautiful boats, which, which many of which survive today. I was out on the harbour at the weekend, and um, as I said, and there was a big classic yacht regatta, and some of these boats are over 100 years old and they're still racing. Um, kauri is a, is, a, is a beautiful wood to work with. Um, well, it's quite soft, but it makes, makes um, these beautiful, long-lasting yachts, mostly because um, in other countries, yachts are pulled out of the water in the winter um, when it freezes over, and so their timbers get a chance to shrink and contract, and so they can actually become damaged. But because these yachts live in the water all the time, most of them, some of them have been preserved for, for over 100 years and are still racing. Well, I have to say that the thing that gets me about classic yacht racing is that um, all the ropes are the same colour and they don't have any labels on them, um, so it can be quite a challenge. But uh, Iorangi was, uh, was one of Arch Logan's big four designs, along with Rainbow, Araki and Rafferty, um, all of which have been, uh, have been restored. And see, so she came to Wellington to take on Rainbow and a yacht called Waitangi um, on Wellington Harbour. She also cruised extensively in the Marlborough Sounds. Um, She's changed hands many times. Um, she was um, she was to be exported to Australia in the 1990s, um, but that was considered to contravene the Antiquities Act, uh, which is now known as the Protected Objects Act. Um, and so she was restored here and uh, and now sails up in Auckland. Um, although she now has a different a different rig to that, which has been quite uh, quite controversial. This is another great shot of, of Wellington Harbour. Um, in April 1913. This is the warship HMS New Zealand, which, um, as I say in the book, is a classic example of um, spending money to buy things to impress people that you don't like, um, spending money that you don't have. We actually borrowed money off Britain in order to build them a warship and give it to them. Um, and we didn't actually finish paying it off until 20 years after it had been scrapped. Um, we decided to make this grand gesture um, of, of uh, allegiance to empire. Um, and so it was built in Scotland and came out here. It came out on a, it was on a, a grand tour of the colonies. Um, it came out here in 1913 uh, when it was actually called into war service. But um, while it was here, it, it went on a tour all around the country, um, went to large ports and small. It was seen by an estimated 360,000 people, which at the time the population was about a million people, so it's a, a lot of people went through it. Um, and it was a, there was a lot of um, uh, jingoistic chest beating involved and uh, you know, a song about good old New Zealand. And it was considered to be, um, there's a quote in the book, where it was considered to be a, um, a great uh, um, facility for the indoctrination of, of children into the belief in, in the empire. And so it was quite a, quite a propaganda machine. Uh, it was, however, also... Um, uh, obsolete before it was really completed. It was built to an old design that had sort of been superseded, and so it was already a bit of a white elephant by the time it was launched. Um, it, but it was it was considered to be a, a great source of national pride. The the captain was given a, um, a tiki and a pew pew skirt, um, which he was uh, supposed to wear into battle. Um, the the one of the cap the first captain that it had. Um, 
uh, wore it in the first two battles. The guy who was the captain in the third battle that it saw was too fat to wear the skirt, and that was the only battle in which it sustained any, any significant damage. So it saw action at uh, Heligoland, the Dogger Bank, and Jutland. Um, probably its most dramatic action was when um, it was T-boned by the HMS Australia in the fog. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, this is saying that both ships sustained quite a bit of damage. Then she was mothballed after the war um, and scrapped as part of the uh, disarmament provisions after, after World War I. And as I said, then we went on paying for her for quite some time after that. I love this image too. Um, obviously, whaling was one of the most um, important industries in, in early New Zealand, especially before the sign of the Treaty of Waitangi. Um, and obviously, it's something we look at now with with horror and some revulsion. The idea that um, that that we should have been killing these these beautiful things, but that's a very um, that's a very 21st century mindset. And one of the things that um, we try to do when studying history is to think about. Um, where the people were coming from at the time, you know, to these people, uh, the whales were um, were a resource. They were readily available. One of the interviews I did in the book um, was with Ron Pirano, one of the last of the whalers who operated out of the Marlborough Sounds, and um, and he was very pragmatic about it. And he said that um, it's like farming. You, you know, you have sheep in the paddock, and you take them and and, um, and use them for the resources that they can provide. Uh, in this case, he said the whales, the whales were there, they were plentiful, um, there was a need for the products that they supplied, and when that need stopped being there, um, and the whales stopped being there, um, there was no need for whaling anymore. But the whalers had um, a critical role in, in, that, in, among the, in that early contact period, and they were among the first people to settle here permanently, um, initially in the Marlborough Sounds, but also around the Kapiti Coast and up around Mana, the, the shore whaling stations, and these became some of the first Europeans who lived here and had that, that early contact with Māori. Um, and this picture's taken about 1918, so towards the end of the First World War. And it shows Joe Pirano Sr. and Arthur Heberley, um, they're standing on the tongue of a, white, of a right whale at the station in Tippy Bay, which is in, in Tory Channel. Um, which... Yeah, which is, imagine standing in the mouth of a whale. I think it's a really, really amazing image, and that's why I'm talking about how the images are, are so important. Um, I have come to the end of my talk, um, which I realise is, is possibly a little bit early. So um, I am I'm happy to answer any questions or talk some more about, about New Zealand's maritime history. I think hopefully this talk has given you an idea of what, um, what the book might contain, the idea that we have had a changing relationship with the sea over time. It's gone from being a resource and something to be exploited. It's gone from being a highway, um, both a barrier and a, and a way to um, encourage movement between, between other parts of the world. Whereas now, as I said, we, we turn our back on it to some extent. Certainly living in Auckland, I'm lucky enough to be able to see the sea and see the, the shipping going on, see what's happening um, outside my window. But Auckland's a vast city where, where the majority of people maybe don't have that relationship with the sea anymore. And I think it's important to look at that, um, that relationship and think about how it's affected our heritage um, and, and the history of New Zealand. Um, I have some books um, at the back there. I'm happy to, to talk to people after the talk, um, to sell books um, if you'd like to talk some more. But thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to come and see me today. Thank you.